All right, gang. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to uh, uh, 1 Corinthians. For some reason, I've gotten on, I want to keep saying 1 Timothy. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to be picking up verse 18. Let me reiterate something. I was talking this week, and I've said this a million times, I will always say it. Regardless of what's going on in your life, regardless, whether it's as a church or individual, wherever you're studying, look down. You're going to find this where you need to be, because the Lord's trying to tell you something. Because he speaks loudest through his word. And I was talking to, uh, I think it was Brother Ned at the... Uh, thing that we did. And I said, look, three and a half years, whatever it's been. I said, when we started Sunday night, I told everybody, when I offend you, not if, when. And I said that. And I've said it many times during this time. When I offend you. Do me a favor and tell me that I did. Here's why. It gives me the opportunity to explain myself, to apologize, neither, or both. But if you just get mad at me because I said something which I felt was under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and you walk out, and you never come back, then I'm not losing sleep over because I don't count heads but you very well may be. And I don't want that. Right? We're here to edify one another. So, let me reiterate it again. When I offend you, and I'm not trying, what did Paul the Apostle say? Let not many of us, you know, be teachers. James, excuse me, James. Why? We shall concur the greater condemnation. Let not many of us be teachers, because in word we offend many. It's not our intention. But it happens. And this is right where we're at with Paul. Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthian church. Why? Because they've been offended. To the point where they have undermined his apostolic authority. They're not listening to him anymore. This is actually the second letter. The first one we don't really have. The third one, Paul will even get more pointed. To the point where he's going to ask them to consider whether or not they're even born again. He's telling them, examine yourselves, brethren, whether you be in the faith. Because it got that bad with them. So, last time, as we were talking, Paul was discussing the issue of the church. And, you know, we talked quite about in depth about that as far as how the church is built. Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. And, of course, he was talking about that declaration that Peter had made. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Not that Peter is the rock, because this is a fallacy. It's not what even Peter said that Jesus was the rock, if you go back and read it. So he's talking about the foundation of the declaration that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. He was the one upon whom the church would be built. And Paul said as a master builder, as a wise master builder, he had laid the foundation. Of course, the foundation is Jesus Christ. And he says, now let anyone who builds upon that, let him be careful about how he builds on that foundation. And we are coming into a time, gang, in church history that is unlike and unparalleled than any other. And I don't say that tongue-in-cheek. I'm a student of history, and I have been for ever since I've been in the ministry. When you study church history, 
You will never find a time like this. The church has always had turmoil, no doubt. You go through it, you look at it, but the, the craziness that we see going on within the body of Christ today is unprecedented. It is unparalleled. Now, that's not to say that the church of Jesus Christ, which is made up of individuals, right? Not a building. It's not made of hands. It's individuals. I believe the church of Jesus Christ actually is very healthy. I think it's very healthy. But as an institution, it's not. And we see the ungodliness. This is what Paul's letter to the Corinthians was about. You know, I've heard people here recently, somebody has been, we got all kinds of people who go online and listen to the studies through Romans. And I, you know, I, I'm not a fool. I told you guys this before, like even on radio, you know, I've had the radio guys tell me, oh man, everybody loves your study in Romans. They said, who wouldn't? It's got nothing to do with me. All you got to do is read Romans. It's a happy book. Why? Because it talks about Jesus Christ and how you're forgiven, how he's imputed his righteousness. Yeah, that's good stuff. I would love to camp out there. I do. I love it. Because you can walk out in the church and everybody's going, oh, I love Doug. He's such a great preacher. Until we get to Timothy. Until we get to the hard stuff. Listen, I didn't write it, gang. I just deliver it. And you know, sometimes people want to blame the messenger. It's not, I'm, not the, I'm not even the messenger. I'm just a little under rower. We're going to talk about that tonight. I'm really nothing. So I have to deliver it the way it is. Am I passionate? I am passionate about Jesus Christ. I am. And sometimes I say stuff and I say it off to listen, I, I don't know any other way to be. I can't be something that I'm not. I'm not a sugar-coated guy. I know I'm not everybody's cup of tea. I'm not trying to be. The only cup of tea I want to be is for Jesus. And I mean that sincerely. But God has chosen each and every one. We all have different personalities, don't we? And the Bible says it's the same spirit, but the difference of administration. So I have one way. We re I was talking earlier about Ken Graves, fellow Calvary Chapel guy. Has a huge church up in Bangor, Maine. And Ken was a lumberjack for years. He's got that perfect G.I. Joe beard. You know what I'm talking about? Real handsome guy, built like a, you know, like a lumberjack. And he's got this voice that's like really, really deep. You know, when he speaks, he's got this real manly way of doing stuff. That's Ken. That ain't me. We're all different. But it's our love of the body of Christ. It's our love for people. that makes us continue to do it. Paul said, it's the love of Christ that constrains me. So I want you to pray for me. You know, I'm not trying to offend you. Here recently I posted something, and this is, you know, you're going to know why I said all that. And we'll get into the study, and I will get you out of here on time. There was a thing about the, the ordination of transgenders. So I posted it because it's absurd that we would even have that discussion within the body of Christ. I don't care what denomination it is. And then I was attacked because I said, God, deliver us from these infidels. Now, if you read the article, my implication was the person who was doing the ordinating, okay? That's who I was talking about, because that's who I had the real problem with. The poor, confused kid, who, whether it was a man or a woman, I have no idea. You'd have to go back and look at it. I don't know. They wouldn't even use the term. They called him M. But I had a young man who I ministered to who grew up basically in my house who came on there and accused me of not loving him, not caring about him, not praying for him, when that's all I've ever done delivered the gospel. Somebody else 
who's also a homosexual, who I've known for years, who I also pray for, didn't like what I posted. Listen to me. Like I told them, to, to encourage somebody in their sin. I don't do it for myself. The gospel goes for me. It goes for you. It has never changed. Listen, God loves you. God says, come as you are, right? But he loves you too much to leave you as you are. So you come in your sin, absolutely. But you will not stay in your sin. You won't. I believe it's a supernatural thing. I don't think I have to stand up here and pound on the, on the pulpit against this or that or anything. I think when a man has a genuine encounter with Jesus Christ and his life has been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, that is what changes him. It is the Holy Spirit that comes in and he changes him. There's an old adage in, in Christendom that says, you know, we catch him, but God cleans him. And I'm good with that. I am. But to, don't expect me to pat somebody on the back and sit back and act like the sin of homosexuality or, or infidelity of any kind is okay in the sight of God. Or that a man of God or a woman of God can think that they can hold an ordination in the sight of God with that kind of sin in their life. It's impossible. Oh, you can call yourself, that you call yourself anything. Call yourself a butcher. If I ask you to cut a strike of meat for me and you can't cut me a T-bone steak, then you're not a butcher. You can sit in a garage all your life and you can think you're going to be a car and you'll never be one. You can sit in a movie house all your life and never be a movie star. You can go to McDonald's all you want and never be a hamburger. And you could sit in church all your life and never be a Christian. But yet you can hold the office of a pastor, a deacon, an elder, or whatever else we call them. That doesn't make you that. Those that are, those that do. You know? Greg Laurie, some of you know who he is, great evangelist. You know, I'm from Southern California. It's where I was born and raised. And he's doing what they call the SoCal. He's done it for years. And it's a huge outreach. And it's Billy Graham. It's Billy, I mean, Franklin Graham sits on Greg Laurie's board, okay? So just to give you an idea. Well, here recently, if you haven't heard, I'm going to tell you. Greg's always done these posters where they advertise for SoCal, you know, Southern California uh, evangelistic things. So, and he's holding it over at the, at the A's Stadium in Los Angeles. So they, they publish this stuff. You know, it's, it tells you the date here, when it be. He's got a picture of him on the, on the front, and it's just him holding up a book. Well, you and I know what the book is. It's a Bible. It doesn't say Bible on it. It's just a black, I mean, it's a black and white picture. But Southern California, they went nuts. They went crazy. First time. They revoked his advertising. Told him he couldn't put the picture. They even, they even went back and revamped the poster. And took the Bible out. I wouldn't have done that. But that's between him. But he, he did it on purpose because he knew what would happen. That wasn't good enough either. Even removing the Bible wasn't good enough. They said no. Here's your money back. We don't want you advertising. So he's kind of got this little campaign now because they're still holding it. And it will, the stadium will still be packed because I know how God's going to deal with it. But he said, he held that Bible and he said, you know, we need people to stand up for the word of God anymore. And uh, 
So he's got people taking pictures of them holding up their Bible. And that's cool. But here's what I want to encourage you to do. Hold that thing up in here. And here. Believe it. Because the Word of God is the only thing that matters. It is our book of discipline. There is no other book of discipline. It's what we go by. It's our practice. This is how we know God, and this is how we know how God knows us. And it's being attacked, gang. Now, it's not just the church. They hate the Word of God. They hate it. Where they can't even see a picture of it on an advertisement without wanting to take it down. So the time's coming when people like me and you who take a stand for the Word of God and for the things that the Bible teaches are going to be ridiculed. Persecution is coming to this country, whether we like it or not. Maybe not to the extent that we see it in brothers and sisters who are giving their life, but our freedoms in the gospel are being eroded quick. So we're living in a strange time, but it started here in Corneth. That's how far back it goes. So don't think it's strange is what I'm telling you, that all of a sudden, you know, here we are at the end times, which I believe we're living in, and somehow the church has gone crazy. I mean, it has, but it's been a slow, steady progress. Paul dealing with these guys and reminding them of what the church was built on. It's built on Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone. He's the one. He's whom we serve. If it wasn't for Jesus, none of us would be here tonight. There would be no reason for us to be here tonight. So Paul talks to these guys. And I left off last time where we were talking about Paul was saying, look, you know, know you not that he who defiles the temple of God, him shall God destroy. Now in that particular passage, which was in 16 and 17, he was talking about the church as a whole. Talking about the fact that the, that the temple of God, he related it to the church of Jesus Christ. And then we jumped, and I took you over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 15 through 17, where Paul begins to give you an idea of, of what it is that defiles the church. And he was talking about sexual sin and the issue of fornication and making ourselves, uh, I have no idea what's going on with my mic, but giving them a, a, an implication that, that, the, uh, that the sin was, was uh, Roger, what's going on? Pardon me. Technical difficulties. My engineer. Head honcho. The chief guy. Thank you, brother. But the statement that Paul makes is that he who defiles the temple of God, him shall God destroy. Here's my only point on this one. And we'll move on. Sexual sin is really what's being drawn into the church. I want you to get that. Every article that comes out, especially about our own denomination, this is what's being drawn in. This is where they separate. They're going, well, no, we don't want to argue about it. We just don't agree on it. Well, brother, the Bible's clear on it. So what are they doing? They're bringing this in. So Paul says, those who defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. We've got to be careful about that. So the temple of God is holy. Which temple, he says, you are. Look at verse 18. He says, let no man deceive himself. For if any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise that they are vain. You know, the true pursuit of wisdom, Paul states uh, there in 18, and he kind of, he does it with a slight poke in the ribs to the Corinthian church because he's really being sarcastic with them. And he says, if any man's wise in this world, don't let him deceive himself. Well, they were wise in their own eyes. They prided themselves on the wisdom of the world, the Corinthian church did. They loved listening to great orators. 
and people that seem to come across with great, great uh, ability, worldly wisdom. So Paul's kind of really just poking them. You can hear the sarcasm in it. You know, many Bible teachers have pointed out, like I said, that this was a major problem in the Corinthian church. They prided themselves on this thing of just really being uh, wise, you know, in their own eyes. And as far as the world is going, worldly wisdom is basically humanism. You know, it's, it's what it is. It's humanism that's wrapped up in a man-centered philosophy. And it sounds like it makes sense. So often, now I'm going to, I'll give you one, and I'm not picking on anybody. I'm just giving this as an example because somebody posted it on Facebook. You get so much crazy stuff on Facebook. You know, my Jewishness comes out, oi, you know, oi vey. It, it's nuts. They had a picture of Billy Graham. Interview. I love Billy Graham. Billy Graham's led God knows how many people to Christ. But here he was in an interview, probably in the 70s, 80s, and they asked him what he thought about abortion. And what did he say? He said, well, I think that in cases, and he starts giving examples of when it's okay. I'm just here to tell you that it's never okay to kill children, according to God. You can give a stipulation on all you want. We are the only country in the world that kills the innocent for the sake and the sins of the guilty. It's absurd. My point being, is that any man, a man of God or whatever, we can make mistakes in things that we say because our worldly view has been tainted by the worldly wisdom. Because when you say, well, in cases of incest, that sounds like worldly wisdom. Kind of makes sense when you think about it. Or maybe, you know, incest or maybe rape. Well, it certainly would be okay to kill the innocent for the crime of that, right? I mean, it kind of sounds wise you really realize that you're killing an innocent person for the sin and the crime of another. We don't do that. God doesn't do that. So my only point is, is that we can be influenced by worldly wisdom. And Paul says, no, 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 no. He says, if you're going to have a biblical view, if you're going to have a, a wisdom, it needs to be wisdom that is brought about by God. And that wisdom has to come through the word of God. Now, it's, I can tell you right now, though, he says you're going to be a fool in the eyes of the world. And that's what Paul's talking about. He said if you want to genuinely be wise, you have to be willing to stand as a fool in the sight of men. Why? Because when you stand up and say something like I just did, you are going to offend people, especially today. Because they go, oh, well, Doug's nuts. He's too strict. Well, it's got me. I'm just pointing to the Word of God. This is what Paul's talking about. The Corinthian church prided themselves on worldly wisdom. They thought stuff like that sounded good. We're going to see when we get to chapter 5. I hope you guys are reading ahead because these people go nuts. They go crazy. Look at verse 21. He says, therefore, let no man glory in men. Take note of this. Let no man glory in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or of the world or of life or death or things, presence, or things to come, all are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God. Let no man glory in men. But boy, we do it, don't we? We do it. Paul says, no, 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 no. He just went back. Remember, he said, when one man says, I'm a Paul, I'm a Paul, so are you not carnal? Are you not babies in the Lord? He is gracious about it because he says they're in the Lord. 
but he calls them babies. But here he says, don't glory in men. People love to be around celebrity. We exalt the most strangest and heinous stuff. You, I mean, you got people, I'm not even going to use names because I don't even know why they're famous. They're famous for being famous. They've done nothing. They're not actors. They're, not, they're just, and yet there they are, taking their Instagrams, half naked, posting them all over the world. And that's what their fame is on. And yet people, they want to make movies out of them, television shows, reality shows. And the church gets sucked into it. I remember years ago when Calvary Perspectives was still on the air, there was a show that was being produced. Um, I don't even remember who produced it, but it was about these three young, I'll call them prostitutes, because that's really what they were, because they were living in the Playboy Mansion. Girls in their teens living with a man old enough to be their great-grandfather, who was one of the world's biggest perverts that has ever occupied, and yet the most exalted. And when he died, you'd have thought a saint died. How they all poured over, the, you know, I'm going, I felt sorry for his soul. And yet, I knew people, I was listening, I was at a church gathering, and I heard women in the fellowship, how they loved that show. How they loved it. Oh my gosh, are you serious? Biblical worldview would say, no. But a worldly wisdom view would say, oh no, that's, look at the advantages that they might wind up with, you know, getting into movies or whatever, oh yeah crazy. But we exalt people. Paul says, no. Do not exalt men. Don't do it. He, what, he talking about himself or anybody else. But man, we love to do it. We have this thing with, with just exalting people and glorying in men. He says, but all things are yours. Whether Paul or Paul is Cephas, the world, life or death, the things present to come. Paul, all these are all yours. That's your liberty is what I want you to see. He's talking about your liberty in Christ. All is yours. And you are Christ. And that part of it is your responsibility. So we have the grace of God, but we also have our human responsibility is to stay in Christ. Abiding in the Lord, you know. And then, of course, he moves over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at verse 1. He says, let a man so account us as the ministers of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. And moreover, he says, it is required of stewards that a man be found faithful. Now, there's two words I want you to mark down here. Stewards and servants. Thank you. <laughs> I got stuck on faithful here for a minute. But I look at those two words, servants and stewards. So Paul challenges the Corinthian church here in their view of himself. And this is really what it is. Why? Let me just give this to you ahead of time. Paul is addressing the issue that they have stopped looking at his apostolic authority. Why? They didn't want to be judged by him. They thought Paul was being critical. Now keep it in mind who started the church of Corinth. It was Paul. He was their spiritual father. And he's worried about his kids. They had strayed far, far, far away. And he's trying to correct them, but they're not up for correction to the point where they're questioning his apostolic authority. And so now he has to start teaching them how they need to see him, but he's trying to keep it in balance. And so I want to show you this. 
So he challenges them, like I said, in their view of himself and the rest of the apostles, telling them to regard them as servants. He says, I want you to regard us as servants. And I, I love this here because Paul uses a, a different word that's normally used because the normal word for servant here is the one that talks about slaves. Common slave. But not here. He does it differently. And I love that. Here Paul uses the term hyperdeus. And it really describes a subordinate servant which is functioning as a free man, okay? So that's what the word, hyperdeus means to, to, to be a slave, but functioning as a free man. It doesn't mean a common slave, which is the way it's translated most of the time. He said, so, I, he said, I want you to count us as hyperdeus. That is, a slave, but functioning as a free man. And I think it's interesting because Paul, he doesn't use, like I said, the other word is doulos, which means a common slave, and he doesn't use that. So he's trying to give these guys balance. But then he gets over. And he starts talking about the issue of stewardship. So first he says, I want you to regard us not just as a common slave, but as one who is a free man. Now, the word also means to be an under rower, which I think is interesting when you think about it. It's an under rower. What's an under-rower? An under-rower is a guy who, who was in the hole of the ship. Now, it wasn't a prestigious job, but it wasn't a slave job either. It was a paid job. So they were down in the hole of the ship. Now, they had slave ships that did it, but this is not what Paul's talking about. It's not the image that he's trying to give them to them. It's more like Jesus is the captain of the boat, and these guys are under the deck, and they're the ones that are down there rowing. This is the term that he's using. This is the image that he's trying to give. G. Campbell Morgan said it like this. He said, an under rower is one who acts under direction and asks no questions. One who does the thing he is appointed to do without hesitation and one who reports only to the one who is over him. That's what an under rower is. Stewart's, on the other hand, which Paul also uses here, is one who manages or he's a manager of a household. Pretty straightforward. So Paul says, you know, we're both stewards and we're servants. We're a servant, but we're still free men. We're not just common slaves, but we are stewards. And stewards, if you take a note, this is a very important word because it applies to all of us. So even though the tune stirred here means one who manages a household, the relationship of the master of the house is interesting because what he's saying is that in the house of a steward, a steward takes care of everything that, that the master owns. He takes care of the money. He, the distribution of it, he took care of the feeding of the household, all those things. And so his relationship with the master was one of a slave, okay? So the steward was a slave to the master, but to the other slaves in the house, the steward was the master. Make sense? So he's not, you know, he's not a, a, just a slave among slaves. He, the steward was actually the head of the slaves. So he was actually the master to them. And so this is the passage, this is the vision that Paul's trying to get these guys to understand when it is connecting to them as apostles, how they're to view them. Not too high, not too low, balanced. A slave, yeah, but not a common slave. A steward, yeah, but not just a common steward. 
These guys had a very special job. And they were doing it by the power of the Holy Spirit, but it wasn't being recognized. And Paul understands the necessity of this. Why? When a person, a teacher, pastor, whatever the case may be, when somebody sits in front of you and they do not recognize or acknowledge the anointing. Now, I've told you guys this before. I've been in the ministry many, many, a long, many, many years. I'm not foolish. I've never been so foolish to think that anybody who sits in a study that I teach, whether it's on radio or anything, are listening to me because they think I'm, I'm great. A lot of them listen to me because they can't stand me. It's a fact. My radio show, matter of fact, probably 30% of everybody who listened to my live show hated my guts. And they were the ones who listened the longest. Why? Because that's the way it is. That's just the way it is. Here's my point, though. When they don't see you that way, they're really wasting their time in Christendom because they're not learning anything, you see. Paul was having the same problem. Paul's trying to correct an issue in the church, but they were not recognizing his apostolic authority. They didn't want to recognize his anointing. And so he's trying to get them to at least see him in the, 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 the role that he actually was playing. And not only him, but the rest of the apostles. Because as we find out about the Corinthian church, they turned their back on all of them. They didn't want to hear from any of them. So this is why Paul is doing this. It's important that he establish his position with them, you know, in a biblical way. Like I said, not too high, not too, uh, not too low. Paul's ministry, he always comes under criticism. And the Corinthian church was good at doling it out. Whether it was about his mannerisms, which they didn't like, or his style. Because Paul's style was, after he got done preaching, there was either what? Revolt or revival. Sometimes both. That was Paul. He didn't know any other way to be. But what I liked about Paul was that after Paul would preach him, when people were offended and they would voice their opinion to him, here's what he would always tell them. Did I tell you the truth? Because that was foremost important to him. Why? Because he was a servant and he was a steward of things of God. Did I tell you the truth? In Galatians 4.16, Paul actually uses and says this very thing to them. He says, have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Now, maybe you've never experienced this with any of your friends. Unfortunately, as a preacher, I've experienced it too often, too, too often. That when you simply deliver the Word of God, from a biblical standpoint, often people will turn their, they get mad. They get upset. But, and they misunderstand because they think it's you. And it's not you. It's the Word of God. Something's in their heart that's being pricked, and they, they need to take heed of that, but they don't. They get upset. They got upset at Paul. Jesus said, if the world hated me, they're going to hate you also. You know, it just happens. You can't help it. What I want to encourage you in is when you are talking to other people, just speak what the truth is. Speak the truth in love. But even if you do that, sometimes it's not taken in love, but that's down their half now, isn't it? My wife told me, she's told me... <laughs> I am probably the most misunderstood guy in the world. That's the way she sees it. Because why? I just, you know, I'm honest. I can't be any other way. I'm not going to beat around a bush. I'm not going to hide things. I'm not whispering in the dark. If it's biblical, I'm going to say, what's the Bible say? That's what we got. I don't claim that I know everything. I don't know everything. But I know the one who does. 
and I've got the source from it, which is the Word of God. You know? Paul was the same way. And, you, and you, maybe you have found this. You know, you're you talking to people sometimes, you know, I mean, have you ever offended a friend? But the Bible tells me that the wounds of a friend are what? Faithful. I don't know whether you ever read that passage. See, that's biblical worldview. Listen, I can have a strong disagreement with you and still love you. I can have an extreme disagreement with you and still love you. But some people aren't that way. And, you know, I learned that the hard way because I used to believe God is my witness. I really did. I thought everybody was like that. And I found out the hard way they're not. Matter of fact, I found out the hard way most of them are not. But we should be. You know, as a musician, let me just give you an illustration of this. As a musician, any good musician, and I have been very privileged to play with some great ones over my career just from years ago. But a great musician is one who is the most self-critical I've ever met. Nothing they do is ever good enough. They go into the studio, and I know this feeling, and you come out of there, I don't care how much money it costs you, you're going to walk out and you're going, man, we could have done that better. If I just did this, if I just did they're self-critical. But it's being realistic about your own ability, because some people are not realistic about their own ability. And as the Bible says, they think more highly of themselves than they should. It's keeping it in balance, gang. So what am I saying? I'm saying, look, as Paul was telling these guys, he says, look, I love you, but you're wrong. They would get upset with him. We ought to be able to have constructive criticism with one another and still love one another. Speaking the truth in love. That's what we should be able to do. And if we keep in the Word of God, we can. And we can have a great relationship, even in church and within our family and other relationships. But Paul did say there in Galatians, he asked him, you know, have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Paul talked there about faithful stewardship. He said, first and foremost, it's required of stewards that they be faithful. Not only was he a servant, he, not only did he want to be seen that way and as a steward, but he says, look, you've got to be faithful. Because in stewardship, not everybody's faithful. I remember... Years ago, I was a young man, fresh in the ministry, but I was a tent maker. So I was still working for a, a grocery chain at the time. It's, the, the company was called uh, Peter J. Schmidt. It was, uh, they had stores called Apples. And I, was, uh, I had applied for a job. It's a long story. I don't have time to go into it tonight, but it was one of those three-time things. And finally, I answered the call, and I had never worked in a grocery store in my life. When I went in for the interview, I didn't even want the job. I really didn't. Uh, I was being forced to do, do it, to be honest with you. So when it said a position applied for, I didn't know. I wrote manager. <laughs> I really did. You know, I was like, what, 24, 25 years? I wrote manager. We're talking major grocery store, major chain, okay? I wrote manager. They called me in for an interview. Gene Hauser, I'll never forget him. He was the vice president in charge of supplying managers. I get called into his office. And he could look at me how young I was. You know, he goes, so how much experience you got running a major grocery store? And I said, uh, none. And he just looked at me. He went, what makes you think you can do it? Here's what I told him. I said, well, I think it's an applied science. He goes, what? I said, I think if you're a manager, you could apply it to anything. So I was pretty sure I could probably do it. And I was, I was being facetious, and he knew it. He goes, yeah, I, I think... Uh, yeah, I think we've heard enough. 
I said, okay. So I left. I didn't care. I didn't want the job. But I got a phone call. Calls me back. He said, I want to talk to you. So I went back the next day. Well, he had had a bunch of people who were there from this other place that I was working. Most of them women. And he goes, I got to ask you a question. I said, what? He goes, are you a preacher? I had never said that. I didn't put it on my resume. And I hadn't said anything in the interview. And I said, uh, I've been called worse. And I says, but how did you know that? And he goes, I had the weirdest interviews after you left yesterday. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, he said, every person that came in that worked at that place where you work at. He said, I always ask them one question. Have you learned anything where you're at? And he says, in my whole years, and he'd been doing it for 40 some years at that time. He says, I've never heard the answer that I got yesterday. And I said, and I started shaking. I, I, was, I had no idea what he was going to say to me. I said, well, what did they say? And he said, they said they learned the Bible. <laughs> and I said, I started laughing. I said, the Bible? He goes, yeah. He said, every woman that was in here, they work on your, you work on a chain? I said, and I had to explain to him how the, I said, yeah. And I says, and I'm kind of down at the end of the chain. And they send me Bible questions. And I, I teach him the Bible while we're working. And he said, you want a job? And I said, doing what? He said, I need a steward. What's a steward? I mean, I know what it is biblically. He goes, tell me what it is biblically. I said, well, biblically, it's a guy who's in charge of another man's stuff. He goes, that's what I need. And so they hired me as a receiving manager. I didn't even know that at the time. But I never forget him saying this. He goes, can I trust you? And I said, um, and what do you say to that? I said, well, you yeah, I mean, I guess. Yeah, well, sure. You know, he goes, well, you're a Christian, right? And I said, well, brother, that don't always mean anything. I'd like to say, I wish I could say that it did, but that don't always mean anything. I said, I've never been a steward over another man's stuff. I mean, I, yeah, I guess I can, sure. You know, but he goes, well, I've got to be able to trust you. You know, and he gave me an illustration, which I won't go into because it was kind of weird, <laughs> of how much he had to trust me. And I thought, wow, that's, that's some deep trust. But that's what I wound up doing for the next few years. Paul says that it is first required of a steward that they be trustworthy. Because you can put a person in charge of another person's gifts, stuff, money, property. Because as a steward, you don't own those things yourself. You are in charge of another man's. In this case, we're talking about Jesus's, right? Everything that we have as a church, as individuals, is really from the Lord. So you've been put in charge of that. But if you had somebody that you put in charge of your fight, would you put a bank robber who had been found guilty of robbing banks after they, I mean, would you put them in charge of you? I, I wouldn't. I'd be going, hey, brother, I love you, and I believe in redemption. <laughs> but I'm not going to lay that temptation before you. So Paul says in order to be a steward, you have to be first faithful. And that is according, of course, to the things of God. And they were talking about mainly the mysteries of God, which Paul goes into. Look at verse 3, and we're going to finish this up. He says, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgments. Yea, I judge not my own self. For I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified? But he that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the heart. Now, you need to take note of this, gang, because this is what he's talking about. And then shall every man receive praise of God. 
He's talking about that judgment seat of Christ. We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. This is what Paul's talking about. He's addressing their lack of acknowledgement of, of the calling that's on him in the body of Christ. As an apostle, because he knew that his apostolic authority was being ineffective. Why? Because they didn't recognize it. They didn't recognize it. They wasn't acknowledging it. So Paul's going, look, you guys are judging. My judgment of you, his position as an apostle had nothing to do whether they saw it or not. But it had everything to do with whether or not it was effective in their church. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, the fact that they didn't want to recognize him did not make him any less an apostle. He was still an apostle to the rest of the, of the body of Christ. But for these guys, it was, his ministry was being ineffective because of their lack of recognizing it. It's kind of like with Jesus. There in Mark, you remember the story when Jesus told Peter, he said, well, who do the people say that I am? Or the disciples. And they began saying, well, you know, some say you're John the Baptist, you know, you know, but who do you say that I am? I mean, Jesus first wanted to know who the people thought he was. And of course, Peter was the one who said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. But he wanted to know. And it's not unlike what Paul is trying to get to the bottom of here. You know, who, who do you think that I am? Who, who do you say that I am? Because he's wanting to minister to them because he loves them like children. But at the same time, if they don't recognize his apostolic authority, it's not going to work. And it's not arrogance, gang. I had a woman one time get up and walk out of a study of mine because she thought I was exalting Paul too much because she thought Paul was arrogant. He was a sextus. I went, excuse me? I had a, it was the most bizarre after church conversation I ever had with a person. I said, have you ever studied the word of God, darling? Have you ever looked at the apostle Paul? Here's a man who said he was chief of sinners. He didn't say who was chief of sinners. He said, who am? The man was extremely humble. But he also understood where his position was in Christ. That's not arrogance. That's confidence in Jesus. And so often people can misunderstand it. So you've got to be careful. And this is what Paul's trying to get across to him. But he says that their judgment of him, he said, was a very small thing. And that's not to say that we can all have that kind of attitude. That somehow I don't care what you think. I heard a pastor, <laughs> this is at a conference here recently, and a Calvary guy, I won't mention his name in case he's listening to me, and, and he said, you know, early in my ministry, he said, I used to tell the, the church, you know, I don't care if you like me. I don't care if you like me. He says, I've changed my tune about that. Well, sure you do. Why? Because I want to be liked. I'm like you. I don't want you hating my guts for some reason. I don't want you misunderstanding me. You know, I, I, want, you, I want to be able to minister to you. I want, to be, I want you to be able to minister to me. Because it's a give and take in the church. As I said, there should be very little distance between the pulpit and the pew. We are a family. Okay? Families are family. Now, every family has their weird uncles. Every family's got weird uncles. Every family's got those guys that, you, you know, at the, at the party. You're going, uh, is Uncle Joe going to be here tonight? I mean, come on. You know, everybody's got them. And in a family, everybody's got them. And in the church family, everybody has them. Paul's trying to keep these guys together. Today, we're living in the attitude of commodity. And I want you to hear me on this. Most people look at church as a commodity. Now, this, this isn't nothing new. This has been around for a long time. 
Well, how do you know that, Doug? Because people can walk out of one church into another so fast and so quickly, it isn't funny. Without a Mary a thought of leaving people that they grew up with. Now, I don't know about you. I tend to get attached to people. I love people. That's why I'm in the ministry. You know, I've only been here just over three years, and some of you, I love, I'm, let me rephrase that. I'm closer to you than some of my own family. It's a fact. Why? Because we have a common blood. Common blood of Jesus Christ. We have camaraderie. We have joining of the Spirit. That's not easily broken in my book. But today it seems to be. Church, you know, especially when it comes to discipline. When it comes to discipline. Why? Because nobody wants to be disciplined. Nobody wants the, this to be our book of discipline. So when we start talking about discipline, people say, well, I'm just taking my bowl and I'm going down the road. I'll go down here to Bob and Fran's Church of Fun where they don't care. And they do it. Not because of doctrine. Not because there's craziness going on, but simply because they are fed up. If I had a nickel for every time I heard I'm not being fed, I'd be a rich man. Listen, you guys, I won't speak for everybody, but you guys are self-feeders. Most of you read. That's all you got to do, right? Because the Holy Spirit is teaching you all things. This is what the Bible says, right? Biblical worldview. So you be a self-feeder. There's nothing wrong with having teachers. Paul's going to tell us that. Though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, he says, yet not have many fathers. So we don't want to look at church as a commodity. We want to look at it as a family. And we want to strengthen the family to strengthen the things that remain. Listen, that way we can have interaction, maybe some of it even negative, and still love each other. We can have disagreements. Now, how far do the disagreements go? Well, listen to me. As long as we're standing on the Word of God, we're good. Just don't ever ask me, as part of your family, to step outside of the Word of God or to condone something in your life that I wouldn't condone in my own. I had somebody ask me about ministry the other day. And I said, one of the things at Calvary Chapel that I can honestly say, and anybody who served under me for years would tell you is true. I never asked anybody in that church to do something that I didn't do first. I did it. And I still do. Why? Because I love you. I care about you. I want to see you grow in the Lord. I want to see you grow in the Word. I want to see you grow strong. And I want to see us as a body have a vision of something that is bigger than us. Something that has a legacy. Me and John was talking and I threw out the idea of a school here. And I said, look, when I first came here, and I'm going to share this and I will close. But when I first came here, you know, I had come from you know, almost 20 years of pastoring Calvary Chapel and I had went through some things. Some of you have read my book, some of you haven't. So I got away, and I got away with the Lord. And for three years, I was on the backside of the desert, recouping, reevaluating. And through happenstance, if there is such a thing, and we know that there really isn't because of the sovereignty of God, I wound up here. Took the death of another pastor to get me here, but that's what happened. That's how I got here. But when I came here, I remember me and my wife looking. I pulled in. Like, I never even saw this place before. I lived here for like a few years. And I pulled in. I went, oh, my lands. Look at the, 
I remember asking her, it was Roger or something. I said, do we own this? I mean, is this ours? All this property? Yeah. Is it paid for? He said, yeah. I started sweating. Sweating. I was getting happy. I was going, oh, my lands. I had a, I'm not joking. You know, I'm not trying to get Pentecostal on you. I could vision bungalows out here. I'm going, we could do it. Where's the school? We could do the school. We could do a Bible college. See, I wanted to do one at Calvary Chapel, and, and we could have because I had an inroad with them. My problem was I didn't have parking. I had a huge building. I had no parking. I couldn't do it. But we had a great facility. Man, look at the facility we got here. Now, me and John was talking. I said, man, wouldn't it be awesome, brother? I mean, it, John said, I said, he goes, well, it probably, if it happens, it, it'll probably be long after, after I'm gone. I said, it might, be, it, might be, it might happen after I'm gone. But the legacy that it would leave. Because we could be in this area, regardless of what's going on in this denomination, regardless, this church could be a leader in training up young men and young women to uphold the Word of God as their book of discipline. And we could send them out, you see, into the field, to this Jerusalem, then the Judea, then Samaria, then the other most parts of the earth. And then we would be known for one thing. Well, where's that church at? Oh, that's the one who has the Bible college. That's the one who is teaching down there. That's that teaching church. Man, there's been a lot of churches come out of there. That's a legacy. Because you know when that's happening and people are being won to Christ. You know that. I was so encouraged this morning. I saw um, Brian standing out there. And you know, I, I, I look at Brian and I, I keep track of him because I've been praying about the whole time I've been here because I know I am not a missionary. I'm not. It's not my calling. I'm doing my calling. But I have a heart for missions. And when I was pastor of Calvary Chapel, we had missions. You know, Bulgaria and those places. And so when I told Roger, I said, or uh, I told Brian, I said, I got a question for you. I said, we've needed to have this conversation for years now. I said, but listen, when you're over there, I said, man, I said, every time I watch you, I said, if I've ever met a missionary, if I've ever met one, and I've known several, you're one, brother. You're, you're a missionary because it's so ingrained in you. It is so much in your heart. You can't even think outside of that. And you would live there in the dirt if you, if you were able. And he, he, he knows it. He would. That's how, much he, that's how much he's called to that. He's as much called to that as what I am. But I told him, I says, but here's what I see in missions. And it, maybe it clashes with yours, maybe it doesn't, but let me throw it out there. I'm a teacher. I like training men. And I want to train men to be men of God, to be teachers, and to be pastors. I said, this is what we did, this is how we did missions. Now, we did wells, we used to buy goats, and we fed people. But the first thing I fed them was the Word of God, you see. And I said, is there anything in your ministry that would even have a room for that? And he said, oh, yes. He says, because Doug, he says, every time I go, they want me to preach on Sunday, and it's not my calling. And I said, but it is mine. But what I want to do is if I go, 
I want a week's worth or two weeks worth of Bible studies every night so we can not only build a well, but we can get in the well of their heart and to strengthen them in the things of God. So you pray for that for me and for him because I don't know that that's the Lord, but it was something that God laid on my heart, maybe. Maybe it was the pizza I ate. I don't know. But I was excited about it. And I just, I'm excited about what can be. Because where there is no vision, the people perish. We need a vision. And we need a big one. And God has laid it on our doorstep, gang. Look around. I challenge you. And I told the ladies, I said, when you walk out of this building, look at the grounds. I said, man, I go down here and I cut the grass and I'm down there on that thing. And I never, there's two signs at the bottom that I know that maybe most of you have never seen. But if you cut the grass, you see them. And there are two little signs, and I know they meant well. And all it says is no dirt bikes. And I remember the first time I went around it, they're down at the end. There's two of them. One on this end, one down here. If you don't cut the grass, you don't know it. They say no dirt bikes. What I heard was no dirt bikes. No tent revival. No school. No nothing. And it doesn't have to be that way. Because right now, what are we doing? We cut the grass, right? That's all we do. <laughs> we cut the grass. Acres, believe me, of grass. Beautiful. Beautiful grass. Greg Laurie, probably one of the greatest evangelists that is living today. I have an inroad to that. I'm not making any promises, but in my mind's eye, I saw a tent out there with a crusade. Man, God has given us so much, gang. But that's being a steward now, isn't it? That's what Paul's talking about, stewardship. You know, it's not just having the things that God, what are we doing with what God has given us? What are we doing with it? What, 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 you know, Moses. And I will stop. Moses was standing before the burning bush. You know, because we look around at our church here, right? And there's a lot of gray hairs, me included. The leadership, most of it, way past 50 in a book. And I know some of you don't want to hear it. Some of you do want to hear it. Some of us going home to be with the Lord. Ain't that right, Mary? Sooner or later. And some of us sooner than later, Right? We want to fill them seats. And we want to fill them seats with young men and young women who have a heart for the Word of God, who will stand up for the Word of God, who will not compromise the Word of God, and who will train others to do the same. Paul said, I have given this to you, brethren, that you also might be able to teach other men who are worthy. That's what we want to do. And to have a legacy that matters, man. Moses stood before that burning bush. He was 80 years old. He spent the first 40 years of his life being a prince of Egypt. He spent the next 40 years of his life realizing he was nothing as a shepherd on the backside of the desert, only to stand at 80 years old before the burning bush and God saying, I got a job for you to do. And you know what he said? Uh, you got the wrong guy. I stutter. God said, who made your mouth? 
well, I know, Lord, but they're not going to believe me. He said, listen, I got nothing. He said, what do you got in your hand? What do you have in your hand? Well, I got a stick. You got a stick? Throw that stick on the ground. Let me show you what I can do with it. Man, with a stick, Moses separated the Red Sea. And the children of Israel walked across into the promised land with a stick because it's all he had. If we give back to God what he's already given to us and say, Lord, take what we have and use it for your glory, he'll do it if we let him. If we let him. Father, we love you. And Lord, we do thank you. And so often, Lord, Father, we maybe don't take stock as stewards, Lord, of all that you have put into our care. But we want to. And Lord, we want to have a vision. We want to be part of something, Lord, Father, that you are doing. Not that we might glory in ourselves, Lord, Father, but we might glory in you and all that you were able to do that we simply put faith in you to do. Lord, help us not to build the church. Help us to let you do it. Because those that labor, Lord Father, you said, do it in vain except you be the one who builds the house. Stir your people, Lord. Whether they're sitting here, listening by radio, or any other way, pour your mercy, your grace, and your love out upon their lives, Lord. We love you so much, and we thank you, and we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.